Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to U.S. Nuclear Declaratory Policy and the Future of Extended Deterrence. Please welcome our host, Patty Jane Geller, Policy Analyst for Nuclear Deterrence and Missile Defense at the Heritage Foundation. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining today's event on nuclear declaratory policy and the future of extended deterrence. We know that the Biden administration is reportedly considering shifting away from U.S. longstanding declaratory policy of strategic ambiguity and adopting a policy of either no first use or sole purpose. Both of these effectively mean that the U.S. commits to never using nuclear weapons first in a conflict, uh, not even response to chemical, biological, cyber, or conventional attacks, no matter how damaging, uh, i.e. their sole purpose is to deter only nuclear attacks. Fortunately, we have an awesome lineup of speakers today to walk us through uh, these proposed policy changes. I'm grateful to introduce here with me in person Senator James Risch to start us off with some keynote comments. Senator Risch represents the state of Ohio, Idaho and currently serves as the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where he, he has been a tremendous advocate for U.S. leadership on the world stage. So, Senator, thanks so much for joining us here in person at Heritage, um, and you're welcome to take the podium. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. We have a small but enthusiastic group here in the room, for which I appreciate. I uh, hate giving uh, uh, Zoom speeches, which I think uh, is shared by a lot of people. Uh, I make no bones about it. Glad when we get back to doing things uh, personally, uh, uh, things go, uh, go a lot better. Well, good morning, and thank you to Heritage uh, for... Uh, having me here today. It's good to be back and discussing a topic that Heritage has done so much good work on over many, many years. This conversation is of particular significance to not only our own national security, but to the security of our allies and partners. It's important we talk about this today. Uh, I believe, and uh, I think you'll hear as I go through this, I believe that the administration is making a serious, serious mistake in even considering this, as even considerations have consequences in this arena. For decades, uh, U.S. administrations embraced the long-standing policy of strategic ambiguity regarding the use of nuclear weapons. Previous administrations have considered changing to a no first use policy, but realized that international security was more important than ideology. The Obama administration itself studied this closely and rejected such a policy change twice. Earlier this year, our British allies also rejected this change. I think uh, part of this is due to the fact that uh, not only did common sense prevail, but also the strong, strong feelings of our allies also prevail. Over time, in an effort to change the terms of debate, proponents relabeled the concept as sole purpose, but the idea is the same. This is a common strategy used by people who are not getting their way and think by simply relabeling they can somehow change the dialogue. That's wrong here. If the Biden administration adopts a sole purpose nuclear declaratory policy, it will scare our friends embolden our adversaries, and damage the very non-proliferation goals it claims to support. Again, relabeling does nothing to the underlying conditions. I believe the Biden administration's consideration of such a policy misses key points about U.S. nuclear forces and their important role in international security. First, U.S. nuclear weapons are essential to the deterrence of nuclear and non-nuclear aggression. Conventional forces cannot provide a similar level of deterrence as nuclear weapons. Tailored and flexible, U.S. nuclear deterrence ensures adversaries do not miscalculate and instead understand they cannot benefit from conventional or limited nuclear escalation. Second, as I wrote in a, a committee report 11 years ago, U.S. nuclear forces provide an umbrella that also protects our treaty allies around the world, including NATO allies and Japan. 
This deterrent both reassures them and removes the need for them to build their own nuclear weapons. A no first use or what is now called sole purpose nuclear declaratory policy or any perceived weakening of U.S. nuclear deterrence would be a betrayal of our allies. Weakness is not appreciated by our allies or our enemies. It would cause them to lose confidence in the Biden administration's allegiance to NATO's Article 5 commitments, and it would call into question U.S. commitments to transatlantic and Northeast Asian security. This administration claims it wants to strengthen U.S. alliances, yet U.S. allies have recently and and repeatedly told me personally and have told the administration they strongly object to changing to a no first use or what uh, the uh, liberals uh, label a a sole purpose policy. This administration should listen to our allies. A switch to a no first use policy would, first and foremost, embolden China and Russia. China is rapidly expanding and improving its nuclear arsenal. It is fielding a full triad building more than 300 new silos for intercontinental ballistic missiles, increasing its nuclear alert level, and mixing nuclear and conventional missiles at numerous locations. China recently tested an orbital delivery system with a hypersonic glide vehicle that appears to be a first-use weapon. Why would a country that has historically kept a small nuclear arsenal and a low alert level suddenly change course? China's increasing nuclear capabilities will enable its already immense and growing conventional forces to become more aggressive. With this backdrop, a U.S. sole purpose policy would play right into China's hands and increase the risk of Chinese conventional aggression. Russia also has also pursued a massive nuclear modernization effort. It has grown its already large tactical nuclear forces, and it is developing and fielding new exotic strategic delivery systems, including hypersonic missiles, nuclear-powered uh, cruise missiles, and nuclear-powered uh, undersea drones. At the same time, Russia threatens more and more aggression against its neighbors, most notably towards Ukraine. Moscow will see a U.S. sole purpose policy as an indication of U.S. weakness and withdrawal from European security. In the wake of a sole purpose policy, U.S. allies will question U.S. commitments and credibility and likely seek alternatives to their traditional reliance on the United States nuclear umbrella. Such alternatives would inevitably lead to the proliferation of uh, nuclear capabilities, which U.S. policy has long sought to prevent. Sole purpose could thus easily increase nuclear dangers, not reduce them. Proponents of sole purpose have been clear about their true intent to justify major unilateral reductions in U.S. nuclear forces, regardless of growing threats or objections from our allies. In the face of nuclear challenges from China and Russia, the United States must instead maintain a safe, secure, and effective nuclear deterrent that protects the homeland and assures allies and deters our adversaries. We must proceed with long-planned modernization programs. They are long overdue, and we have been promised uh, more work in that area, uh, which promises have not as yet uh, gotten to where they need to be. We're going to continue to pursue that. That includes a full nuclear triad, non-strategic nuclear capabilities, a robust command and control system, and a recapitalized nuclear weapons complex. Endorsing a sole purpose doctrine and surrendering our nuclear capabilities before and without the rest of the world uh, agrees to do so will only destabilize the international system. As this administration completes its nuclear posture review, senior officials need to look at the facts. Nuclear deterrence works. It has promoted international security and served the United States and our allies well for more than 70 years. As China and Russia rush to build up their nuclear programs, it would be wrong and incredibly dangerous to abandon this proven 
policy. I look forward to hearing more on this topic from today's distinguished panelists, Representative uh, Taro Kono of the Japanese House of Representatives and Lord George Robertson, former UK Defense Secretary and former Secretary General of NATO and current labor uh, peer. These allied voices are critical in this debate. I'm honored to have this opportunity to open this discussion, and I truly look forward to hearing their views. Thank you very much for having me here. All right, great. So we heard some awesome remarks from Senator Risch. Um, we're grateful that he was able to make it here in person and set the stage for the rest of our discussion. Um, so as he mentioned, we're moving on to a panel discussion with two esteemed guests that we have on virtually. Um, I'm excited to introduce Mr. Taro Kono, who served as Minister of Foreign Affairs and Minister of Defense under Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. He currently serves in the Japan House of Representatives. Um, and it's actually very late in Japan right now, so uh, Mr. Kono, we're, we're very grateful to you for, for joining us and making the effort. Uh, then we have Lord George Robertson. Um, he is a British politician in the Labour Party who has a long career of public service, including roles as the 10th Secretary General of NATO uh, and Secretary of State for Defense. Um, I, I know we were having some technical issues before. Uh, I hope you make it on, sir, but uh, we're going to get started with some questions at least for um, Mr. Kono and hope to see um, Lord Robertson on soon. Uh, so I'm going to start with questions, but um, to the audience, please submit your questions throughout the event and we'll have some time to get to audience questions at the end. So um, I'll start off with my first question. Uh, Mr. Kono, what is the thinking in Tokyo when you hear that the United States is considering adopting a nuclear declaratory policy of uh, no first use or sole purpose. Um, it'd be great if you can walk us through. Thank you. Uh, good evening or good morning or good afternoon, wherever you are. Thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, online conference. Well, in East Asia, China is fast growing its military. Uh, I think Chinese economy is peaking out soon and they have some social economic uh, issues. So in order to keep the Communist Party rule in China, uh, we expect China uh, is taking more assertive action for political uh, reasons. And uh, once U.S. conventional forces uh, dominated the region, but uh, it's no longer overwhelming and China is fast catching up. So we are very concerned about the current situation and especially uh, Taiwan Strait issues. And uh, no first use uh, draws a red line. And uh, below the red line, anything goes. That's the wrong message. And uh, as Senator said, uh, the possible use of nuclear force uh, it will complicate the calculation of the planners of the other side. So I'm um, not quite sure why the American administration is now considering uh, no first use. Um, China may get, get it wrong way. Um, it they may see uh, no first use as uh, American signal of appeasement. Uh, it's just like uh, Great Britain uh, before the World War II. Uh, they send the wrong signal and Germany, Germany got, got it wrong way. And we are worried about the uh, same thing could happen. And uh, it would also send the wrong message to North Korea. Uh, they might use uh, bio or chemical weapons for certain uh, situation. And uh, solo purpose, uh, Kim Jong-un may get the wrong message. Well, I don't think China is uh, likely to use chemical or bio weapons, but uh, China uh, could uh, do uh, cyber attacks and uh, that could lead to a devastating situation if it hit the uh, uh, vital infrastructure in United States and its allies. 
so uh, solo purpose. Um, well, it's uh, idealistic, but uh, in reality, it could send the wrong message to China and uh, North Korea. Even if you United States tries to lead by example, we don't think China and Russia uh, care about it, and they certainly would not follow uh, U.S. lead. So unless you could build a trust uh, between United States and China and Russia, the declaratory policy do not work to begin with. So we are we are very uh, concerned uh, the missile gap in East Asia. China now has uh, more than one thousand uh, missiles, uh, INF, and uh, our side got none. And uh, the gap between the conventional forces is now closing fast. So. Um, no first use or solo purpose. Um, if there's a tr mutual trust between uh, U.S. and its ally and China and Russia, uh, it may be a very nice I I idealism, but uh, that, I mean, the mutual trust is not here. So we are worried about uh, it could send the wrong signal to the other side. So I think any allies of United States uh, will probably oppose to this idea. Thank you very much. Excellent. Uh, sir, I love how you brought up chemical and biological weapons and also the topic of idealism, which are two thoughts I'm hoping to get to later. Um, now I'll turn to Lord Robertson. I hear you're here with us on the phone. Um, I'd like to turn to you and ask you the same question, and if you could outline what is the thinking uh, in London when you hear that the U.S. is considering a no-first-use or a sole-purpose policy? The, the United Kingdom, and indeed uh, all of the other uh, NATO allies, would be dismayed. I think it very disappointed if uh, the United States was to consider no-first-use or sole-purpose um, because the whole basis of uh, nuclear deterrence and nuclear deterrence under NATO is based on the ambiguity uh, that is necessary uh, in, uh, in, in, that, in this particular field. You know, none of us like nuclear weapons. No, nobody wants the use of nuclear weapons at all. I started out my political career demonstrating against the arrival of American nuclear weapons submarines in Scotland way back in the early 1960s and ended up in charge of Britain's independent nuclear deterrent. So the whole, the whole idea of no first use might sound appealing, uh, and uh, its advocates argue that the U.S. can set an example to other nuclear powers in the world and that that would somehow reduce the possibility of nuclear conflict. Well, in my journey from, uh, from demonstrating to being in charge of our nuclear arsenal, and, you know, I thought originally that we could set an example and that that would lead to reciprocity. When I was Defence Minister of the United Kingdom, I did reduce the number of missiles, the number of warheads. It didn't lead to any reciprocity, any, any anything balancing that uh, at all. So uh, these things sound appealing, but there are three reasons why no first use would divide NATO and actually increase, uh, as the previous two speakers have said, increase the risks of conflict. First of all, such a declaration would be treated with scepticism by potential adversaries. You know, they, they, they judge us by their own standards, and they simply would not believe that we had done it, and it might encourage them towards more military aggression if the threat of nuclear reprisals was to be lifted. Secondly, NATO is a nuclear alliance. And that is an alliance. It's, a, it's a, a group of countries who have all agreed to be deliberately ambiguous about the circumstances in which it would 
deploy nuclear weapons. Um, it's, it's maybe uncomfortable, but it is necessary because otherwise you would signal to an adversary that it was okay to attack just short of a nuclear attack. So do we want, do we want to have a conventional war in Europe before even the prospect of nuclear weapons was, was threatened? And thirdly, at a time of heightened tension due to Russia and China's growing military power, a U.S. declaration of sole purpose or new first use would, would unsettle Washington's allies in Europe and, as we've just heard, in the Asia-Pacific by, ca by casting some doubt on the U.S. security guarantees it would make their allies more susceptible to coercion or, or blackmail uh, or driving them into developing their own nuclear uh, weapons, their own nuclear deterrence, uh, and that would increase dramatically the amount of proliferation in the world. So for these reasons, uh, I believe the NATO countries, the other NATO countries, would look with dismay and disagreement on any decision to go down that road. Great. You both made the point that a no-first-use policy might uh, embolden our adversaries kind of below the red line of nuclear conflict, uh, which I love. Uh, I'd like to backtrack a bit um, and talk about uh, extended deterrence, which I think is what is at the heart of this discussion. Um, and I'd like to hear from both of you just to establish why is maintaining a strong uh, U.S. nuclear umbrella so important in the first place? Um, could I? Um, well, as I said, China uh, is increasing military spending. Their military spending increased 42-fold in the last 30 years, and uh, they're spending more and more. And uh, in conventional forces, the gap is uh, just narrowing. And uh, there is a big... Uh, worry over Taiwan Strait, and uh, in order to prevent uh, U.S. Uh, coming coming through the first island chain, China uh, may try to uh, use nuclear weapon or threat to use nuclear weapon to control the escalation. Uh, I think. In their uh, strategy, uh, they they are talking about uh, trying to introduce the threat of nuclear weapon to manage the escalation and uh, prevent the United States intervening. And uh, extended deterrence uh, is vital uh, to the security of Japan and the peace in the region. Uh, if there's any move by the United States sending out the wrong signal, uh, it might weaken the de extended deterrence or even on uh, trust. Uh, it would lead to uh, China's more assertive action towards Taiwan or in the East China Sea. And that is very much uh, destabilizing. So there's no time for the U.S. government uh, to openly talk about solo purpose or no first use. Uh, before we consider that, I think we need to get China coming to some kind of nuclear uh, arms control or missiles uh, control regime. We need to build a mutual uh, trust with China so that we can actually sit down, we meaning the United States and uh, U.S. allies, could sit down with China and possibly uh, Russia in the uh, Far East to talk about the reduction of whole uh, weapons or nuclear uh, weapons, but uh, before we can establish those mutual trust and some kind of uh, arms reduction framework, uh, unilateral declaration uh, by the United States is destabilizing in Asian situation. 
Lord Robertson, from the NATO perspective, why is a strong U.S. nuclear umbrella so important? Well, self-evidently, the uh, the nuclear umbrella uh, has united the uh, the alliance uh, together in defence against uh, any of the potential adversaries. Uh, so, in NATO, uh, which is largely European, and in the Indo-Pacific, the nuclear umbrella has been the basis of stability uh, for the last 50 years. You know, t- today is the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, now, you know, we have prevented any such attack in all of the years since the Second World War, largely because of the nature of the nuclear umbrella. You know, uh, only the United States, the United Kingdom and France have nuclear weapons in Europe, and that has provided a degree of stability and safety that is extremely important. And it's been because we have all agreed in NATO on that fact. Um, so this is an alliance policy. All of the countries in the alliance are united. The British nuclear deterrent is committed to NATO, as is the United States. So any move to end that ambiguity or to uh, suggest a change in the nuclear posture would, would be hugely damaging to NATO and to NATO unity at a very, very difficult point in history, you know, 100 and 150,000 Russian troops are massed on the borders of Ukraine at the moment. So, you know, we're at a moment of unique tension. So the last thing you want to do is to create any discord in the, uh, in the NATO alliance at that point. The second thing I would say is that extended, the U.S. extended deterrence has also been because of a desire to prevent other countries getting nuclear weapons. Um, otherwise, people would have looked to their own security. So the, the, the American extended deterrence has had the effect of minimizing proliferation and making sure that other countries didn't seek uh, to replicate nuclear deterrence on, on their own. So any uh, breach in the unity of purpose that is involved both in NATO and in the Indo-Pacific would be exploited by our adversaries and potential enemies as well. So the unity of the alliance is here and at stake. And I hope, therefore, that the nuclear posture review and the president himself, and I know the president of old, uh, will not go down that route and damage uh, the uh, the unity of the NATO alliance, which has been so important for world peace in the last 60, 70 years. To your point, I actually read uh, Admiral Grady's advanced policy questions this morning to be vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he uh, highlighted that um, a weakened U.S. umbrella, there is a real concern about uh, allied proliferation. So thanks for bringing that point up. Um, Lord Robertson, you also mentioned NATO unity. Uh, um, a concern that I've thought about is the other nuclear weapon states in NATO, uh, France and Great Britain, don't have no first use policies. And I know that uh, Secretary Wallace from the UK, at least, has explicitly stated that uh, the UK will not adopt one. Um, so if the, if the US adopts a no first use policy, what does that mean for, for NATO nuclear declaratory policy and unity as a whole if uh, there are differing policies? Well, it would be it would be very uh, discouraging if there was to be two different policies on uh, on nuclear deterrence. You know, the, the, this is a hugely important, enormously significant issue, and alliance unity is hugely important. So I'm not even thinking about the thought that the that the Americans might go down this route. It, it looks potentially attractive, but the moment you look at it in detail, I think you can see the flaws that are in the argument as well. And the whole question of alliance unity is important. Under the last president, there was a serious challenge uh, to NATO and to Article 5 and to the whole concept of collective defense. Um, but laterally, President Trump made it clear that he still stood by it. As President Biden has been a long-standing, long-standing believer in the unity that, rep- that NATO represents, which is a quite historically unique unity as well, and this would break it. And to have 
to have two different policies in terms of nuclear deterrence, I think, would be hugely damaging, unsettling, and could only give encouragement to our adversaries. Mr. Kono, a bit of a similar question. Uh, if the U.S. does adopt a no-first-use or sole-purpose policy, how might this affect our alliance with Japan? Um, well, Japan is not uh, going to get a nuclear weapon, even if United States adopted the sole purpose or no first use. But uh, definitely the situation in East Asia vis-a-vis -vis China will, be, uh, will become destabilizing. And, uh, well, uh, we also have a nuclear threat coming from North Korea. And uh, Kim Jong-un may get uh, uh, wrong, you know, wrong signal from the United States. So uh, Kim Jong-un Jong is also developing a missile program. Uh, he might get idea that if it's not a nuclear, it's okay to test their capability and they might try uh, some kind of cheap shot, uh, uh, South Korea or Japan. So uh, it would definitely lead to some kind of destabilizing uh, situation vis-a-vis -vis North Korea, also vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Great. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go back to the topic of chemical biological weapons. You mentioned this earlier, um, Mr. Kono, in the case of North Korea. Um, I'd like to hear a bit more from you. If we adopted a no-first-use policy, um, how might this affect deterrence of um, chemical and uh, biological weapons? Or, in other words, what does the threat, how does the threat of uh, nuclear weapons, why is that important for deterring um, those types of threats? Uh, we believe North Korea has had uh, some serious chemical and bioweapon programs. Uh, they also have a nuclear weapon program as well. Um, well, if Kim Jong-un knows if he used a nuclear weapon against South Korea or Japan, the United States would retaliate. But uh, if the United States adopted solar purpose, uh, Kim Jong-un may uh, think that the United States would not fully uh, retaliate uh, against uh, his use of chemical or bioweapons. Or he might just simply use non-nuclear missile uh, against their uh, neighboring country. Uh, if, if he chooses to shoot the missile at uh, areas or island where no one is living, uh, he might think United States may not uh, retaliate. So in case of those situations, Japan definitely need to increase some kind of strike capability so that Kim Jong-un uh, may not get the wrong idea. Uh, we need to let him know that even, even with his cheap shot, uh, he will be retaliated. Uh, that's something Japan seriously need to consider in case of solo purpose or no uh, solo purpose. Uh, China uh, may uh, consider a similar thing, um, and China may uh, think it's a American signal of appeasement. Um, they might they might get get it from the United get, get, they might get the signal of some kind of appeasement over the Taiwan Strait, and they might try to be more assertive against Taiwan. So it is a very uh, dangerous uh, test of will or test of signal uh, against uh, China. Uh, I don't see any upside of adopting no first use or solo purpose at this uh, time. Lord Robertson, how concerned are NATO allies about Russian chemical or biological weapons programs uh, and removing nuclear weapons from the table as a way to deter those threats? Well, the NATO allies believe in deterrence, um, and it is deterring any attack on the territory of the NATO countries. Um, you know, they... Uh, 
the attacks of 9-11 led to the first invocation of Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty. Uh, I, I announced that in 2001. It was a terrorist attack on the United States, but it uh, a, created the first ever invocation of Article 5. So deterrence is designed to stop people from using weapons against the NATO countries. Um, and deterrence, nuclear deterrence especially, means that you don't use it. You, you raise the threshold of pain for any potential adversary so that that country does not use it against the NATO countries as a whole. That's why you have to remain ambiguous. Any attack uh, can have a retaliation to it. So if you, if you say no first use, i.e. you say that you will only use nuclear weapons against a nuclear attack, what you're signaling is that you won't use nuclear weapons if there is a chemical and biological attack against those countries. You're giving that very explicit signal. I don't think anybody wants that. After all, you know, we, the First and Second World War shows the cost and the damage of conventional warfare. So the, the ambiguity involved in nuclear deterrence must be maintained. And any potential adversary who is going to attack with weapons of mass destruction needs to know that there could be retaliation using all the weaponry that is available in the in the armor to signal uh, that uh, uh, that you are not ambiguous or that you would only use it against nuclear weapons could clearly signal that the use of chemical and biological weapons would not be responded to with the ferocity uh, that would be seen otherwise. So it, it, it undermines the whole concept of deterrence as a whole and therefore uh, is something that we should not adopt. Great. I'm glad you highlighted the importance of uh, ambiguity and the role that plays. Uh, so let's turn to a few audience questions. I think we have a lot coming in. Yeah, thanks, Patty. Jane, uh, both Patrick Rhodes and Stephen Benson are curious about whether or not there could be some sort of nuance to a no, no first use policy where uh, the no first use policy continues to be applied or you apply the no first use policy just to strategic nuclear weapons and you maintain ambiguity for tactical weapons. They're curious whether something like that uh, might be possible. Interesting question. Um, do we maybe want to address that? Go ahead. Well, let, let, let me try to answer it. And I really do apologize for just being on the phone, but the technical problems were insuperable. But, you know, uh, I don't believe you could have a nuance there. The, the difference between strategic and tactical uh, weapons is, is not one that, that could matter. Deterrence is deterrence. Nuclear deterrence is nuclear deterrence. It's quite sim simple. Uh, if you reduce the ambiguity, then you encourage people to game the system. Somebody believes that they can they can use weaponry just short of nuclear weapons or short of that distinguishing line between tactical and strategic. Um, you know who who's going to be the arbiter there? Who's going to be the decision maker there? It, it, it's a it's a binary decision. You if you have nuclear weapons, you must retain the ambiguity about how you would use them in defence uh, of uh, the national interest and the inter and the, the NATO interest as a whole. A theme that I'm hearing from both of you is um, why would we remove nuclear weapons and have less deterrence? Um, just what reason is there is there for that, especially as the threats are increasing? So uh, John Venable asks, uh, advocates of the no first use policy argue that the United States can set an example to other nuclear powers that would reduce the threat of nuclear conflict. They're, they're interested in the panelists' thoughts on that argument. Mr. Collins, you <laughs> well, mentioned setting an example. Go, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I think it's very naive. Uh, even if the United States try to lead with examples, I don't think China would reciprocate. 
China will simply uh, take it as a sign of weakness. And there's no mutual trust between China and the United States. So there's no way China is trying to follow the lead. Uh, I think the United States would uh, uh, simply uh, show the sign of weakness and Russia and China would try to maintain uh, the current status. If China is, uh, is to follow their examples, I think they would come to the INF uh, treaty uh, so that they could put the cap on uh, missile programs. And they are not willing to do that. Uh, why should we believe that they would be willing to do that for nuclear weapons? I, my, my view is that, that um, first of all, uh, potential adversaries wouldn't believe it um, because we don't believe it when our potential adversaries say that they believe in no first use because we, 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 don't, we don't think it's credible. They're unlikely to believe us. And even if they did believe us, then they might think that it was worth the gamble of taking some form of action against us short of u u using nuclear weapons. Uh, do, do we actually want to get back to the kind of conventional warfare that we saw in the 20th century uh, in Europe and in, uh, and in the Asia-Pacific? You know, we, we didn't use nuclear weapons there up until, up until Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but the, the consequences of conventional warfare were devastating and horrible. So uh, I, I don't think that we would be setting any kind of example um, because it's not credible at a time when nuclear weapons exist. They can be uninvented. What we need to do is make, make a determined effort internationally to create the conditions where nuclear weapons are no longer useful or, uh, or, or tactical. Um, I long for that day. That's why I came into politics in the first place. But these conditions don't apply at the present moment. Hopefully in the future they might. So uh, next question comes from Maya Clark. She, she'd like the panelists' views on, you know, if there is one thing that the Biden administration could do in the new year to strengthen extended turns, what would that be? That's a great question. In, in my, in my, in ahead, my view, it, uh, the, new, the nuclear posture review, review needs to confirm uh, the uh, the robust position that the United States has taken from administration to administration over the years, maintain the triad, uh, you know, renew renew where where it is necessary, uh, but maintain a minimum degree of deterrence that will make sure that that the United States and its allies, whether it be in Europe or in the Indo-Pacific, retain the degree of security that they have at the present moment. Well, I, I, I would say one thing we could ask for is uh, modernizing uh, 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 ICBMs, I think, uh, so that United States could keep the triad. Uh, I, I think that would enhance their uh, extended deterrence. I'm glad you brought up uh, ICBMs, and I want to dig a bit deeper into that. Um, there have been reports that um, the Biden administration might consider studies to um, keep our, uh, our old Cold War era ICBMs for longer and delay modernizing um, ICBMs. What kind of signals does it send to allies uh, if the United States um, forgoes modernization of, of our ICBMs? And I'd love to hear about that from both of you. Um, then then the United States would need to spend more on uh, SLBM and strategic bomber, maintaining or expanding SLBM and uh, submarine fleet would be more costly, I believe. If the United States wants to save some money and delaying ICBM, 
uh, you may end up spending more on SLBM, and uh, I don't, I don't, um, well, I don't think it's uh, wise spending. Uh, plus, uh, if you delay the modernization, I mean, you will be losing ICBM, and uh, the other side may uh, miscalculate that they may have they may have some second strike capability intact, and that would uh, lead to uh, different calculation uh, for the other side. Uh, I, I don't. I mean, uh, in order to maintain the nuclear uh, capability and extended deterrence strong, uh, I think our side need to uh, invest uh, more. Yes, there are things that Japan need to do. Uh, we are considering uh, some kind of missile missiles capability. Uh, we are seriously considering uh, missile capability to uh, um, to increase our capability vis-a-vis -vis, uh, China and co in consideration of Taiwan Strait. So Japan need to do uh, more to enhance uh, alliance. But uh, I, I hope the United States would try to maintain the extended deterrence to the region here as well. You're right that um, not modernizing our ICBMs would probably not save us much money. Uh, in fact, the Air Force found not too long ago that keeping our old ICBMs could cost uh, $38 billion more than pursuing the modernized version because of the cost to maintain such an old weapon. Um, Lord Robertson, how do you think um, NATO allies would react or would they worry if um, the U.S. decided to forgo modernizing our ICBM? I, um, I, I hope that the quality of this line is not an indication of the quality of the communication lines for nuclear weapons, but I, I completely lost you there. Sorry, I was asking uh, if the U.S. does not um, choose to modernize its ICBMs, how might NATO allies react to that? Would that be would that cause worry? The I, I think people expect the Nuclear Posture Review to look at all of the different elements of the triad and make sure that they are up to date and that they are they are sufficient for the for the task. So the the, the mix of submarine launched as well as intercontinental intercontinental ballistic missiles has got to be you know has got to be up to to the standard and up to the competition as well you know lots of new uh, technology is coming into play uh, hypersonic missiles appear now to be the, the the fashion and we're beginning to see them being displayed so it, it's very important that you know america's nuclear forces whatever they are are as modern as they can be and appropriate to the kind of threat um, that will be faced by the United States and its allies in the future. So if that means modernizing the ICBM fleet, then uh, so be it. But I think we've got to keep a mix uh, because that is crucially important in order to maintain the degree of deterrence that up to now has given us such an insurance policy. Great. Um, so this has been excellent. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask uh, one or two more questions. Um, from each of your perspectives, uh, and we'll start with you, Mr. Kono, what more can Japan do to bolster our shared deterrence? Thank you. Um, well, Japan is not going to have nuclear weapons. We're going to be relying on uh, United States extended deterrence. But our situation in East Asia vis-a-vis -vis China I think we need to be able to control the uh, escalation ladder uh, starting from the conventional weapons. And uh, in, in order to do that, I think we seriously need to uh, consider some um, missiles capability of ourselves. It would, uh, it would support uh, American forces and... Uh, uh, I think if uh, we are able to control the escalation ladder, uh, there are a lot of uh, 
meaningful uh, conventional uh, weapons, conventional missile capability. And uh, in order to uh, complement American uh, forces, uh, I think Japan seriously need to consider uh, what we can and what we should do uh, in, uh, in this situation, especially uh, the situation over Taiwan Strait is so dire. Uh, I think we need to be very realistic. Uh, if something happens, uh, what Japan should do, what Japan can do. And uh, some, some of those programs we seriously need to consider. And that would help uh, American uh, deterrence capability, I believe. Great, thank you. Um, last question goes to you, Lord Robertson. Um, what more can NATO do to bolster our shared deterrence? Well, NATO must continue to spend uh, the appropriate amount of money that it is committed to by country, uh, the 2% uh, tally. But that, of course, is not enough. It's what it's spent on that's important. And the President Secretary General Stoltenberg has been outstanding uh, in the pressure he's put on allies to increase capability uh, as well as readiness of uh, the forces that are available to NATO. And that is something that, you know, I believe is going to be crucially important in the future. If, uh, if deterrence is, you know, and we're talking here not just about nuclear deterrence, but about conventional deterrence as well. And remember, it is deterrence that has produced the stability and peace that we have enjoyed uh, since the end of the Second World War. So deterrence in all its features has got to be, uh, has got to be maintained. In terms of the UK role, um, the, uh, the UK government, and remember I'm in the opposition to the UK government, but had the uh, Defence Secretary Wallace has, uh, has gained a very substantial increase in the British defence budget, and I commend him uh, for that, and that's made a serious contribution to, uh, to NATO's strength at the present moment. And in terms of Britain's independent nuclear deterrent, we're looking forward to the successor program to the existing submarines. Uh, the Vanguard submarines will be replaced by the Dreadnought-class submarines, and that will mean that the United Kingdom will be maintaining continuous at-sea deterrence. Uh, a, a submarine launch ballistic missile submarine uh, on patrol 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. That is a sizable contribution uh, to the strength of NATO at this time. But the strength of NATO is the collective strength of the 30 countries inside that voluntary alliance of nations. It is a huge strategic success story. And we've got to make sure that alliance unity, which underpins that strength, is maintained and strengthened into the future. Excellent. Well, I believe it's almost uh, 1 a.m. over there in Japan, so I think we're going to wrap up here. Uh, thank you both uh, so much for uh, joining us today and for, for making the effort, especially in your different time zones. Um, this has been a great event with a lot of great points that we discussed. So, and also thanks to our audience for, for joining us here virtually today. Um, and I hope everyone has a good rest of their day.